Good morning. Welcome to Kirk of the Plains. It's so good to have you with us this morning. Uh, as a matter of fact, if this is the first time that you're watching us, well, we would love to know that you're out there. Uh, as a matter of fact, on our website, kotp.org, uh, abbreviation for Kirk of the Plains, uh, we'd love to have you fill out our online visitor card. And uh, as part of that, we also have a place if you would like to submit prayer requests. As a church, we've been praying for our, our country and for our communities, and uh, we've uh, been praying for you as well, but we'd like to pray for you specifically. As a matter of fact, that's not only for those that are first-time visitors, but really anyone that would like to submit a prayer request. We just ask you to fill out a visitor card and put your prayer request in, and we will be praying for you. Uh, as you'll notice, maybe on our website, uh, we are now, for the foreseeable future, going to be broadcasting our worship services uh, on the website until further notice, and uh, we'll let you know as, as soon as that changes. Uh, but we've also restructured our website a little bit to make it a little bit easier for you uh, to not only watch the video on our website, but also to access the online bulletin and worship guide so that you can follow along during the worship service and many of you have asked how you could continue to worship the Lord through your giving during this time. And we also have an online option that you can do, or you can also send checks to our post office box, 483 Andover, Kansas. And so anyway, we, we're just so thankful that we could, uh, through virtual means, uh, continue to worship the Lord. Uh, this week, uh, we are going to try something new. On Wednesday night, we're going to have a midweek study and, and prayer time. And of course, we'll be doing that online. And we'll be uh, looking at a study, a video study uh, by Ligonier Ministries called Blessing and Praise, Benedictions and Doxologies in Scripture. It's just a wonderful study that just focuses gloriously on who our God is. And so Ligonier Ministries is offering all of their videos online for free. And you just go to the teaching section and then look for blessing and praise. And we're asking people if they would watch the video in their own homes uh, from seven o'clock until it's finished and then jump online. And we'll put uh, on our uh, Facebook page where that access is to so that online room so that you can join in and be with us and we'll start our uh, discussion and study at 7.30 and have a time of fellowship together. So we hope that you can join us and be part of that as well. The scriptures tell us that today is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And this morning, as we turn our focus to worshiping the Lord, I'd ask you, if you would, right where you're at, just to bow your heads for a time of silence and preparation. Please bow with me. Amen. Hear now our call to worship from Psalm 68. God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate him shall flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so you shall drive them away. As wax melts before fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. 
but the righteous shall be glad. They shall exult before God. They shall be jubilant with joy. Sing to God. Sing praises to his name. Lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord. Exult before him. Let's do that this morning as we stand and sing number 216, Praise to the Lord the Almighty. exalt your mighty name this morning knowing that you are so great that none can stand before you even Satan our great adversary must bow before you and do your will Lord as we come into your presence this morning with the cares and the worries of this world on our hearts let us not forget who you are and your great might knowing your great love for your people cause us to cast our burdens upon you and to rejoice and sing praises to your name knowing that there is none like you 
It is in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen. Amen. This morning, as we affirm our faith together, we've been uh, working our way through the Heidelberg Catechism, and today we actually come to the end of the Catechism, and, and particularly on the section on the Lord's Prayer. And we'll be finishing up as we look at Lord's Day 52, questions 128 and 129, uh, found on page 896 in your Trinity Psalter hymnal. So let me ask you this morning, how do you conclude this prayer? For, For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. This means we have made all these petitions of you because as our all-powerful King, you are both willing and able to give us all that is good. And because your holy name and not we ourselves should receive all the praise forever. What does the little word amen express? Amen means this shall truly and surely be, for it is much more certain that God has heard my prayer than I feel in my heart that I desire such things from him. Amen. You may be seated. As you are, please take your Bibles and turn to our Old Testament reading in Exodus chapter 14. Exodus chapter 14. We'll begin with verse 5 and the crossing of the Red Sea. Give attention to God's word. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed towards the people. And they said, what is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army and overtook them and camped at, by, at the sea by Pi Harirath in, the, in front of Baal Zephon. Then Pharaoh drew near. The people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, it is because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm. And see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? 
tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen, then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen, and in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters turned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus, the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so that the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. Thus ends a reading of God's word. Let's uh, bow this morning as we go to the Lord to confess our sins. Let's pray. Almighty God, we come to you this morning with hearts full of thanksgiving. Thanksgiving, God, for the word that you give to us. And that, Father, that your word penetrates our hearts and exposes the truth even about our thoughts and the intentions that surprise even us. It uncovers our self-confidence and our self-centeredness, as well as the secret sins that we hide so successfully from other people. Lord, the truth is, is that too often we love many of the, the, the sin of our own hearts, even 
When outwardly we pretend to be full of, of spiritual desires, Lord, inwardly our heart is opposed to you. Lord, we harbor hatred and anger towards those around us, along with jealousy and malice. We judge and condemn others in our hearts while at the same time being guilty of the same sin that we condemn in these other people. Lord, even our good deeds are stained with self-glory. We often wait to serve others until people are watching so that we may be admired and glorified. We speak your truth, Lord, unfortunately, to others impatiently and without gentleness in order to show others how righteous we think that we are. Father, forgive us, not just for our sinful actions, but also for our corrupt and perverse hearts. Jesus, we thank you that you came to deliver us from our sinful self-centeredness. Please change our hearts to be like yours, that is always perfectly aligned with the Father's word and will. Let us not deceive ourselves to think that we are better than we truly are, but cause us, O oh God, to rest in your grace and in your mercy. It is in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen. Hear now this morning God's assurance of pardon for those who truly repent of their sins from Romans 5. We read, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace into which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Amen. Let us uh, stand this morning and continue to worship the Lord in song as we sing, O come my soul, bless thou the Lord. Uh, page number 103E, 103E.
would and take your Bibles and turn to Matthew's Gospel, the 18th chapter, beginning with verse 1. Let us listen to God's Word. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Pray. We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks for your name is near. Our God, as we come to you this morning, we, we do give thanks to you that you never leave nor forsake us, that you are, are close to us. The, the psalmist tells you, us that you hem us in before and, and behind. The Lord, you are closer than our very breath. And we thank you, God, in, in this time of, of need and in this time in our country where there are so many different things going on, things that have upset our, our routines and, and changed the way that we think. But we thank you that as your children, that God, we are not alone. And so we come to you this morning and, and lift up our prayers to you. Father, we pray for our government and pray that you would give them wisdom and their leadership as they, they lead our country, whether it be our federal, state, or local governments. Uh, Father, I pray uh, for those that are seeking a remedy that God, you might uh, grant that to them, that uh, we might be able to put the coronavirus uh, to rest. But Lord, we also pray as well for those who have lost their jobs. We pray for your provision for them and pray, God, that you would give us eyes to see those around us in need. We particularly, Lord, this morning wanna pray for small businesses, those who are, are struggling, uh, even wondering whether they will continue to be in business at the end of this. Uh, we, we pray that you would sustain them and, and strengthen them. Father, we also pray for those that may be fearful for the elderly and those with immune compromised systems. We know, God, that we have a number of people like that in, in our congregation and pray that you would watch over and, and protect them as well. But Lord, let us not be people who are fearful. Lord, let us trust in you. We thank you, God, that 
There is nothing that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Not even death itself, Lord, can separate us. And so we come today, God, with, with great confidence and to lift these needs to you. But Lord, we pray, if you would, that you might use this time, even within our country, to draw people to yourself. Lord, may people uh, see um, that and think beyond just life upon this world, but may they think about eternity. May, may you cause them to think about you and may you draw them to yourself. Father, we just thank you for, for the way that you watch over and care for us. And Lord, we thank you this morning that um, we can not only lift up our prayers to you, but Lord, we, we also thank you that we could um, come to you and worship you through the giving of our tithes and offerings as well. So Lord, please receive the gifts that we are, are given to you uh, as an act of worship. We pray this in your name. Amen. Let's worship the Lord this morning as we sing the Gloria Patri together. if you would, and uh, turn to Hebrews uh, chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3, we'll begin with verse 1. As, as you're turning there, let me just say that I am uh, deeply indebted to Ian Hamilton for many of his insights on, on this passage this morning as I prepare to, to preach on it. But let us first look at... Uh, God's word this morning and give attention to the reading of the word of God. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him, who appointed him just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Amen. You may be seated. Let's, let's pray. 
Our Heavenly Father, as we, we come this morning, we, we thank you so much for your word. God, it is, it is true, it is righteous, it is perfect in, in every way. Lord, to encourage us, to rebuke us, to, to cause us, Lord, to, to grow in our faith. And we pray this morning that as we open your word, that we might see Jesus. And Lord, that we might seek to glorify him and be strengthened in who he is. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, we've uh, spent a number of weeks in, in the book of Hebrews, and, and probably by now it's become very clear to you that the, the, the point of the book, the, the theme of the book, revolves around Jesus. As a matter of fact, uh, the, I would suggest that the, the theme, not only of this section of scripture that we're looking at this morning, but of the entire book of Hebrews is found in verse one of chapter three, as the writer writes, consider Jesus. That's what the book is about. It's a, it's a, a, a call to us to consider who Jesus Christ is. From, from the very opening verses of chapter one, all the way to the end of chapter 13, the author is helping his readers and, and us as well to walk uh, in a way to clear understand who Jesus Christ is. Because there's nothing that is more necessary for the Christian and especially for Christians who are struggling, Christians who are disheartened, Christians who are given to worry than to know Jesus as he truly is not as we have a tendency to think he is or, or the God that we have created in our minds, but to know Jesus as he is revealed in his word. You see, the writer to the Hebrews wants us to see that Jesus is greater than anything that our hearts may desire or pursue, or even those things that we might have a temptation to fear or to worry about. Now we've, we've talked about uh, over the, the weeks that we've been looking at this book, how the, the audience of this letter, that they were tempted to return to Judaism, that they had endured much suffering and persecution and great hardship. And so they were tempted to, to return to uh, Judaism. But the author here wants them to see that Jesus is greater than anything or anyone that came before him. Now, one of the things that you may notice as you read the New Testament is that oftentimes the writers of the New Testament uh, clearly share the doctrines of the gospel for us to consider and to take heart. But, but at other times, that what they seek to do is to unpack the implications of the gospel for us to consider, to show us how those doctrines have practical and powerful implications for how we live our lives. And let me suggest to you this morning that what our author is seeking to do is the second this morning. He wants us to see the implications of the gospel in our lives. Um, and I say that because if you look at chapter three, look at the very first word of chapter three, therefore. Now, when I was growing up in church, I was always taught that whenever you come across therefore in the scriptures, it's there for a reason. It's there to, to point us back to what came before it. And, and in this case, we, 
are, are pointed back to chapter 1 and the superiority of Jesus Christ, that he is God himself. He is the creator, the one who rules over all things. He is the one that sustains all of creation. He is greater than even the angels. But also, he is the one who shares in our humanity. The, the, we see the necessity of Jesus' suffering to, to satisfy the wrath of God on our behalf by suffering and dying on the cross in our place. And so we see this wonderful gospel doctrine and truth. And now the author says, therefore, let me tell you about the implications of these truths that I've been talking to you about. <coughs> now, the truth that we believe is not merely for confessing or defending. We do do that. We do defend the faith. We do confess the truth each Sunday morning. We affirm our faith together as we worship the Lord. But the truth of the gospel is to shape our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit increasingly into the likeness of Jesus Christ so that we look like Jesus Christ. And of course, as we look at Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, is, as Paul talks about what the fruit of the Spirit is, we see what it looks like to have a life that looks like Jesus Christ. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. And that's the goal of the writer of this letter this morning. He's not merely seeking to prevent his readers from falling into apostasy, although that's partially what he wants to accomplish, what he really wants is to see them grow and mature in their faith. Uh, we, we, we see as we read on into this letter in chapter 5, uh, verse 12, that, that the writer here views the faith. Uh, let me read Hebrews 5, 12. He says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. And so he, he sees that they were weak in their faith and, and struggling in their faith. And so therefore, they were struggling with falling into apostasy. And so what he wanted to do was to see them being strengthened in their faith. Uh, we need to be careful not to be content just to stay where we are in our faith. It's not enough for a Christian to, to merely avoid drifting into apostasy. We must seek to grow in maturity in our faith. And so the writer of this letter seeks to nurture the, these struggling believers in their faith. And I think, how appropriate for the times in which we live. Because for, for most of us, if not all of us, our faith is being challenged in ways that a month or so ago we couldn't have even imagined, right? And, and maybe even like these Jewish Christians, we, we have lost our way in the gospel. And uh, for them, the gospel had become only a message, a doctrine. It had become truth rather than a relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. For them, the gospel had become somewhat detached from the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and the same can happen with us as well. As, as we look at our faith, that we find that we just sort of drift back in to maybe just a sort of a religiosity in our lives, rather than truly a love and a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's nothing like difficult times 
to really test our faith and to, to help us to see really truly where we are placing our faith. And so I want us to share this morning three things that the author of Hebrew shares in these verses this morning. And I want us to see, first of all, that he gives these believers encouragement. Encouragement. Uh, you know, like any good pastor for his congregation, this author has some difficult things to say uh, to this congregation, things that they need to hear and that they need to be challenged with. But, but first of all, before he does that, I want you to notice what he says to them. He says, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling. You see, this is the first time that the writer has directly addressed these believers. And it's interesting that he chooses to call them holy brothers and to talk about how they share in a heavenly calling. So before he seeks to apply the doctrine of Christ in their life, he wants to assure them of God's high regard for those who are his. And he wants to see that. that it, he, he, so he calls them holy brothers. And as brothers, he's identifying even himself with them. He's not standing apart from them. He's, he, he's one of them who, who share with all of God's people in a heavenly calling. Now, he recognizes that, that they are wrestling in their faith. And, and he even has warned them before in chapter 2 and verse 3 of the dangers that they're in when he said, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? So, so he's already warned them, but he also wants them to know that he's not essentially questioning their standing in Christ, but he is taking their profession at face value. And as such, he wants them to see that they are brothers, they are family. He's uh, even spoken in chapter two, verse 11, of Christ as our older brother, that Christ is not ashamed to call us brothers. And so when he calls them brothers, he's not simply saying that we're connected with each other, we're related to each other, but that we belong to Christ together. But then he also says that they are holy. They are set apart by God to be his special possession, his treasured ones. And he, then he goes on to say, they share in a heavenly calling, a calling that has brought them out of darkness and into the light of the gospel. And this calling we see originates with God in heaven. And I think this is really important for us to see this morning. You know, so often when you ask a person about their faith in Jesus Christ, you know, oftentimes uh, they will tell you how they became a believer and how they heard the gospel and how they responded to that gospel message. Maybe they prayed a prayer or they started going to church. But, but the author here, he points them back not to what they have done in response to the gospel, but the effectual call that God does in the life of those who truly believe in him. Because there are many people who will profess to be Christians, but who have not the work of God in their lives. But for those in whom God is at work, the calling of God in their lives is one that assures them that God will complete that which he has started. Now, now, what is that work that we see? Well, we see that he calls them 
holy. And we know that in Jesus Christ, that we do have a holy standing with God as we believe in him. That when God sees his children, he sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He doesn't see our sin. All that's been washed away with the blood of Jesus. He sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so our standing with God is one of, of holiness. But, but we see also in chapter 2, verse 11, that, that the author talks about the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified. And, and as God's children, he sanctifies us. He takes us and he works in our life to change us to make our actions, our behaviors, our attitudes, our thoughts to be like that of our status. Now, those two never are equal here upon this earth. We're never totally sanctified here upon this earth. But, but all of us have ex who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ have experienced the work of the Holy Spirit to change us and, and to make us like Him. And there may even been times in your walk with the Lord where you have doubted uh, your salvation. Maybe you have struggled to think, do I really believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? And yet you see the Spirit of God still working in your heart to see your sin and be broken over that sin and to ask His forgiveness and to repent and turn back to Him. And that's what He wants them to see, that they are holy, set apart, uh, sanctified, by the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants them to see what God is doing in their lives. He wants them to see that they are privileged and richly blessed people. Now, I want us to think about this just for a moment. Uh, not only that we might be encouraged, but also as we might think how we might encourage others in their faith as well. Um, I appreciate Ian Hamilton. Uh, his suggestion that we need to take to heart the pastoral wisdom we see in this passage about how we ought to encourage one another. In other words, he says, looking at the way that this pastor deals with this congregation, you see such a pastor's heart to encourage these believers to turn back to Jesus. He doesn't beat them over the head with their wrongs, but he gently, he graciously turns them back to Jesus. And he said, we need to learn from this as Christians because there are some people in the church who have sort of a, the eye of a hawk when it comes to spotting sin and failures in other people's lives. You know people like that? But, but they are spiritually blind to the need God's people have for kindness and compassion and gentleness. You know, these are people who it seems like are, are pointing out every shortcoming of anybody that's around them. Have you ever been around someone like that? As a matter of fact, you, if you do know people like that, you may even cringe when they come to talk to you because you know that they're probably going to come correct some portion of your theology that they think is not correct, or they're going to be talking about something you said or something you did or didn't do or should have said or whatever. And, and so you just, sort of, you just sort of cringe back. And oftentimes... It's, it's not people like that that encourage you in your faith. Actually, they dishearten you. And, and the more I was thinking about that this week, I thought, you know, it's interesting. We don't need people like that in the church. We already have an accuser. His name is Satan. He is the devil. He's the one that constantly accuses us before the Father, 
pointing out our wrongs. But the father said, I'm sorry, that's covered with the blood. That's covered with the blood. And so if you have never sought out opportunities to encourage a brother or sister in Christ, I encourage you to do so. Don't criticize them. As a matter of fact, I, if I could be so bold, I would say if that's what your temptation is, just keep your mouth shut. Just don't say anything. You know, now you may say, now wait a minute, Pastor Rick. Are you saying that we should never correct anybody? Are you saying that we should never, you know, uh, point out to people those things that they do wrong? And, and I would say, no, I, I'm not saying that at all. I mean, we know from Scripture that we are to do that. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 Paul writes to the Galatian believers and he says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, that's just a big word for sin, if he's caught in any sin, you who are spiritual should restore him. So there is a sense in which, you know, we know that to restore somebody, we have to confront that sin, we have to walk with that person, call them to repentance, and then and then see them turn away from that sin. But you know, I didn't read all of that verse. Let me go back and read all of it. Paul says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So it's not beating them over the heads with their sins, but it is sort of a, a sense of, of gentle care to encourage them to Jesus. Paul does the same himself as he's dealing with the Corinthian church. I can't think of any church where that I think would be more frustrating than the Corinthian church. It was a church of great pride and, and, and sin and things. And there would have been many opportunities for Paul to sort of, you know, beat them over the head with his uh, big, thick Bible, you know. But, but he doesn't. Instead, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, 1, he says, I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. You see, that's the attitude by which he, he is um, correcting others. I mean, Jesus was oftentimes fierce with his enemies, but it's interesting to see how generous and kind and gentle and patient he was with his own. And I think part of that is, is because the only criticism that would actually carry any weight uh, is that which mirrors the pastoral pattern of our Lord Jesus Christ who rebukes and corrects, but does so without breaking the bruised reed. That's such a gentle balance that we see in our Savior. And, you know, for us, we never know how bruised someone is. I, I appreciated the comment of one person. They said, be kind to everyone you meet because you don't know what battles they're fighting. You know, see, people are really good oftentimes at hiding the battles that they're in. And, and so you don't see necessarily how wounded and struggling they are. And if you are an unkind, ungenerous, harsh individual, your words can injure another person's soul. So whether this is as we are wanting to encourage those in uh, the church, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Maybe it's a Christian friend that we've grown up with and known for years. Maybe it's our own children, you know, that sometimes we can be too harsh with and, and carry a, a, a very strict tone with. 
um, we are called to that gentleness. And especially, I would say, if you have adult children who are maybe not walking with the Lord, the temptation can be to want to, to pull them back to the Lord and maybe sometimes not to be encouraging enough. But let us be like Barnabas, who is known as the son of encouragement. And I think it's interesting that the Apostle Paul, who wrote much of the New Testament, you know, once he met Jesus on the road to Damascus and he was converted, couldn't even get into the church because the church was afraid of him because he had been persecuting everyone. And who was the one that grabbed him and brought him into the church and said to the church, it's okay. The Lord has worked mightily in this man's heart and that is Barnabas. And let us be like Barnabas as we encourage others. The second thing that we see here is, is the challenge that he gives to these believers. At the end of verse one, he says, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. You know, he, he uses a very particular word here when he says, this translated consider. It means to consider carefully and thoughtfully. And in other words, don't think about Jesus casually or flippantly or, or just even in generalities but apply your heart and your mind to know him. Not just to know about him, but, but to know Jesus. Let him be the treasure of your heart above all other treasures. Now, we oftentimes know those things that we treasure the most, don't we? I mean, isn't, uh, don't we oftentimes spend a lot of our time and our conversations and things and those things that we treasure? Maybe you've had a hobby something that you like to do very much. And, and, and when you find that hobby, it's funny, you, you try to understand everything there is to know about that hobby, even in its nuances. You dedicate time to it, you study the hobby, you find other people to hang out with that also like to participate in that hobby. You watch YouTube videos about it. Uh, sometimes you become obsessed with your hobby, so much so that maybe you're talking about it all the time. And, and people uh, know what it is that you love. As a matter of fact, they know if you're going to come up and you're going to talk to them, maybe after church or something, they know exactly what you're going to talk about because you're so obsessed with this thing that you love so much. Well, my question is, is have you ever met Christians who were so absorbed and obsessed with Jesus Christ that they make you feel uncomfortable? Have you ever been around Christians like that? You know, maybe you're out with these believers and they're going up to everybody and saying things like, do you know Jesus? Are you a Christian? And, and they're just very bold. Just the, the waitress, the, you know, the, the attendant at the gas station, you know, whoever it might be, they're just talking to everybody. And, and, and they make you feel very uncomfortable because really what they are doing is, is they are exposing how little we actually treasure our Savior. It's not that they're extraordinary people, but they have considered Jesus carefully. They have applied their hearts and their minds to know him. They're, they're not casual in their reading of the scriptures. You know, they don't just read their Bible because you know I ought to read my Bible every day and I've had my devotions and I could check that off my to-do list. They read the scriptures because they know Jesus. They can see him more for who he is. When they pray to him, it's not just a casual prayer. It's not just like, okay, I need to pray for these things. I should pray for these things. But as I get to pray, I get to talk with, I get to communicate 
with my Savior. You see, the writer is deeply conscious of the sad spiritual state of his readers, and he realizes that that sad spiritual state is due to a failure for them to consider Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean that if they do consider Jesus that all their struggles are gonna go away, but, but the place where you fix your eyes is where you'll go. The place where you fix your eyes is where you'll go. Um, I remember when I was um, preparing to take my motorcycle exam to get my motorcycle license, I, I had uh, pretty much prepared for the whole driving test. There was only one part that I was having trouble with, and that is weaving through those cones. And I had practiced for hours. Actually, I had practiced for days and hours, and I just could not get through those cones. I always would run over them. And so finally, I, I turned to my son who had his motorcycle license and I said, Nathan, how do you do this? I just can't get this down. And he, he told me, he says, Dad, where do you fix your eyes? And I said, well, I look at the cones. And he goes, well, where you fix your eyes is where your motorcycle is going to go. So if you look at the cones, you're going to hit the cones. He says, so what you need to do is you need to fix your eyes at a point beyond the cones on a tree or a pole or a stein or, or something, a house, and look at that and don't even look at the cones and just drive through them. And believe it or not, it works. It works. But, you know, it's like that for the Christian too as well. The place where we fix our eyes is where our heart will go. That's why we must consider Jesus, considering Jesus and his preciousness, his grace, his glory, his power, his majesty, his tenderness, his kindness, his holiness, his thoughtfulness, his long suffering, his patience, his sovereignty, his dominion, all those things, as we think about those things, it brings the perspective that we need into our lives. Not just thinking of Jesus in generalities, but really thinking about him in, his, in the specifics and the nuances of his character. You see, it's one of Satan's strategies to get us so absorbed in our circumstances that we take our eyes off of Jesus. I mean, think about this week. How much this week have you considered Jesus? Satan wants to do everything he can for us to think about anything and everything else but Jesus. He wants us to have our minds set upon COVID-19 or unemployment, or can I get toilet paper when I need it, or enough food, or, or broken relationships that are what I have, or, or quarrels that you've had with your neighbor. He wants you to think about all those things rather than thinking about Jesus. Sort of reminds you of the illustration in Matthew's gospel in the 14th chapter, and the disciples are, are in a boat and they're out to sea and they're in the middle of a storm and Jesus is on the land and he sees his disciples struggling out there in this tiny little boat in, in all this wind and waves. And so Jesus walks out to them on the water. Of course, they see him and they're terrified because they're like, this is a ghost. And so they finally recognize, you know, who he is and and Peter says, Jesus, if that's you, tell me to come to you, and I will. And so Jesus says, come. 
And so Peter steps out of the boat, and guess what? He's actually walking on water, and, and he's doing just fine until then he begins to look at the storm all around him, and he begins to sink because he took his eyes off of Jesus. And the writer here is telling these struggling Christians to take their eyes off their circumstances and to consider Jesus. He tells them to consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Now, what is an apostle? Apostle is simply one sent by God. It's, it's a messenger. It's, it's someone sent to, to represent God before men, to, to speak for God and to act on his behalf. And, and Jesus, in talking to his disciples in John chapter 20, verse 21, told his disciples, he goes, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. And so Jesus is the, the, the one sent by God. Now, we know that God has sent many servants throughout time, many prophets to come and to be his mouthpieces. As a matter of fact, in Hebrews chapter 1, we, we looked at this a number of weeks ago, and we, we saw it says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. That Jesus has come to represent God to his people. But Jesus also is a high priest. He also represents men before God as well and offers a sacrifice for their sins. So Jesus as the high priest has paid the penalty for our sin and appeased God's wrath. But he also understands our humanity and prays on our behalf as we struggle in this world. So the writer tells us to consider him, consider Jesus, who represents God to his people and his people to God. Now, isn't it true that so many of our struggles in life are because we do not sufficiently consider Jesus carefully and thoughtfully? And so let us consider Jesus the lifeblood of the Christian life. That brings us to our, our third point, and that, that is the contrast that the author talks about in verses two through six. And the contrast is between Moses and Jesus. But before contrasting them, in verse two, he actually talks about how they're similar. He said, he's talking about Jesus, and he said, Jesus, who was faithful to him who appointed him, that is to God the Father, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. Now, um, understand here that as he's using that term God's house here in this passage, it's referring to God's people. Um, in verse six, the author says, and we are his house. So he's talking about the people of God when he's talking about a house. But, but what he's saying in verse two is, is that Jesus is compared with the greatest prophet of the Old Testament, uh, Judaism's greatest um, priestly figure. Now, you may not think of Moses as being a priest. You might think of him more as being a prophet, sort of like Christ was an apostle. He was a messenger. So was Moses. But there was a sense in which Moses also held a priestly function as well. If you remember, there was a number of times when God was going to strike out his people, wipe out his people, and what did Moses do? He interceded on behalf of the people and stood between the people and God and pleaded their case. And so we see here that both Christ and Moses were both faithful 
messengers and, and, and priests. But he goes on in verse three and he shows us that actually Jesus is greater than Moses. While he might've been faithful like Moses, he's actually greater. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. I mean, if you think about it, you might drive through the neighborhood and you might look at houses and you might just adore houses. You might say, wow, that's a cool looking house. Look at that. You see the, the structure of how they, they built that? That just looks so great. But you don't give glory to the house. You give glory to the builder, the one who, who built the house. And that's what he's saying here. As he thinks about the differences between Moses and Jesus, he said there's really three ways that they are different. And I'm just gonna really just mention these, just list them out. First of all, Moses is just part of the house. He's just part of the people of God. Whereas Jesus is seen as the builder of God's people. Um, it reminds us of Matthew 16, 18, where Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Um, also, we see in verse five that Moses was seen merely as a servant to do God's will. Whereas in verse six, that Jesus is the son. That's a different status. That's a different uh, a place. And, and, and not only that, but in verse five, we see that Moses was a servant in the house or in the midst of God's people, whereas Jesus was over the house. And, and it just reminds us that Jesus is the head of the body, the church. And so in those ways, what, what the author here is saying is, look, don't go back to, to Judaism. In every way, Jesus is, is greater than Moses. As a matter of fact, if you look at verse five, you see that Moses pointed forward to Jesus. Look at verse five, he says, now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. In other words, um, it's not that Moses's ministry and Jesus' ministry were in conflict with each other. Actually, Moses's ministry was part of what Jesus was doing. Jesus was the fulfillment of that. The, the law given to Moses pointed to Jesus, and Jesus is that fulfillment of the law. Uh, remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 17, on the Sermon on the Mount. He said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And then in John chapter five, Jesus in talking with the Pharisees, he explains that Moses had foretold his ministry and directed people to trust him. This is what Jesus said to the Pharisees, John 5, 45. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. You see, Moses presents Israel with pictures and types of the Messiah to come that would be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so, in, in essence, the writer's trying to say, look, if Moses were writing to you guys as Jewish Christians, he, he would tell you to hold fast your faith in Jesus Christ because to return to him is just merely a shadow of the fulfillment of what Christ has done. Christ is superior, and so trust in him.
Now, as we come to the end of this passage, what's striking is that he could have ended at the beginning of verse 6, where he says, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. But instead, um, the writer goes on and he says, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and hope. And we are his people, if you might want to say, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in a hope. He's already called them holy brothers who share in a heavenly calling, but he doesn't want them to presume that all is well with them. He, he wants them to see that all is well with them and, and also with us, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Now notice, it's interesting that the writer himself includes himself in this statement. He says, if indeed we hold fast. You see, he understood even as a pastor, the need for him to persevere in his faith as well. He doesn't write as one who's domineering over those under his care. He recognizes that continuation of faith in a person's life is a test of the reality of God's saving work in that person's life. It's not that one is saved and then can be lost, but rather if they are saved, they will show evidence of that salvation in going on and not turning back. And, and you know, it's, it's fine for us to, you know, ask somebody, hey, tell me your testimony. How did you come to faith in Jesus Christ? And you can say, well, you know, 50 years ago, the Lord saved me. And we might give them the details of, of what that looked like. But the question that we must ask ourselves is, but what about today? Are you going on with Christ? Are you persevering with Christ? Are you holding fast to Christ? He says, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope, what is the Christian's confidence and boasting? It is Jesus. It's who he is and, and what he's done. We have nothing else to boast in. You know, we, we could take time to make a mental list of all the good things that we have done. And I would guarantee you that if you think about that very carefully, you would come to realize that any goodness that you see in your life comes only as a result of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not because of anything that you have done. And so let us go on. Let us continue in the faith, considering Jesus. This is a truth that's for all believers around the world, be it Christians suffering persecution in the Middle East or, or Africa, Christians suffering the Christians facing the uncertainty of life in America in 2020. The antidote is the same. Consider Jesus carefully and thoughtfully. He is the pearl of great price, the most costly of all treasures. Jonathan Edwards, the, the great New England theologian, was absolutely right when he said, true religion in great part consists in holy affection 
for Jesus Christ. The true religion consists in holy affection for Jesus Christ. Isn't that our greatest need? For the Holy Spirit to affect us with Jesus so that the gospel is not merely a long list of truths, but a relationship with one that we have fallen in love with. And we have fallen in love with him because he first loved us. Consider Jesus this morning and see how great he is. Please bow your heads if you would for a moment of silence and meditation. Our Father, we thank you so much that we could come to you this morning. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would cause us to, to love you more and more. God, I pray that you would be the, the great treasure and, and, and the pearl of our hearts. Lord, that we would spend time with you, abide with you, know you, love you, grow, God, in the love that we have for you. I pray, especially, Lord, for those here this morning who may be struggling in their faith, maybe who's, who are cold in, in their faith for you, or they have, have strayed, they have really fallen back into just a sort of a cold religiosity. I pray, Lord God, that you would work in their hearts to call them back to yourself, to repent of their sin, to return to you and to know you. Lord, I pray that you would help us as a body to grow, to love you more. And Lord, may that love be expressed not only in our relationship with you, but our relationship with one another and even how we encourage one another as well. Uh, we thank you, Lord, so much uh, for your wonderful grace and the work that you are doing in our lives. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Let us uh, stand now, if we could, and, and sing, My Hope is Built on Nothing Less, number 459.
God's blessing upon you. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Praise God.